It's great to be with you today. I'm going to get to the text in a moment, but I'm going to give you a little bit of context first. Not really about the text, but I just want to set you up for it. So um, this is actually my third time inside your beautiful church. The first two visits were all-day affairs when I facilitated the Adaptive Church Project here um, back in May. I always begin that workshop with a question that's um, designed to discern the boundaries of what we can say and do in the system that we are becoming together. So I usually ask participants to share two things that they want us to know about them and one thing that they don't. But when I was here last month, I decided to try a new question, one that had recently shaken me up when I read it in an article. And the question was, who were you before the world changed you? And I've been thinking about that question ever since, because I think it's an important one. But it's also fuzzy. It's difficult to pinpoint when the world began to change us. I mean, change is a constant in life. So today, I'm going to ask you to consider a different question, similar but more specific. And I am actually going to give you just a couple of minutes to talk with each other, just with a couple of people, before we go on to consider the text. So this more specific version of the question is, who were you before the pandemic, before George Floyd's murder, before hashtag me too? Who were you before certain forces revealed themselves, where you realized you might not be seeing the whole picture and you might not be an independent actor. So I'm going to give you literally like two minutes just to, with the people right next to you or behind you or in front of you, just a couple of people, just come up with a word or two as you think about that. Go ahead.
I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to ask you to consider, to continue to consider this question about who you were before certain events revealed that there were forces larger than you that were impacting how you behave and how you think, what you see and what you don't see, what you know and what you don't know. I re uh, just this past week, read a piece in the New York Times, some of you may have seen this, where a couple's therapist writes about how our national conversations about power and privilege have impacted her work with couples actually for the better. She says, and I quote, my patients, regardless of political affiliation, are incorporating the messages of social movements into the very structure of their being. New words make new thoughts and feelings possible. As a collective, we appear to be coming around to the idea that bigger social forces run through us, animating us, and pitting us against one another, whatever our conscious intentions. And I gotta ask, do you feel this? Because I know I do. And like the therapist, I'm grateful for the new vocabulary and the ever-expanding awareness that bigger forces influence our priorities, our habits, and our beliefs. But we can also feel very small standing before the systems that have been unveiled. And we can become overwhelmed by the divisions that result from seeing and naming them. I mean, friendships have been lost, families have been divided, and communities have been further torn apart through this unveiling. This moment feels precariously new, but when I turn to scripture, I find that it isn't. Jesus constantly challenged the systems that kept people from thriving. He generated tension by calling power to account for its misuse. And he also brought good news to the poor and to the disenfranchised. He created a beloved community of outcasts, and God's kingdom grew in that wake. Friends, receive this good news. The same spirit that was in Christ is with us. And not only that, but the whole system that is the Trinity comes to dwell within us with a love bigger than anything that can get in its way. Receive this message that the ancients have left us. This reading from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 15 to 23. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. 
Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, asked, Lord, why are you about to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God in us, and for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. The passage that I just read comes from Jesus' last meal with his disciples. This is the meal where he lovingly washes their feet and tells them to do the same for others. And then the conversation turns dark. One of you is about to betray me, he says, and where I am going you cannot follow. In John's Gospel, Jesus is fully aware that he is going away. His disciples have experienced abundant life with him. And so they're naturally afraid of what his departure will mean. But Jesus assures them he will not leave them orphaned. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism will descend upon them, enabling them to keep the truth of Jesus present in the world despite his departure. And even though this in itself is a radical thought, it shouldn't be new to us. Christians have long held that Jesus' mission is sustained through his followers on earth as they follow the Spirit. But what Jesus says next, I've somehow not fully absorbed until recently, and it's curious because he says it twice in this short passage. Since Jesus shares his life with God and the Spirit, his disciples who live in and through him will be grafted into that same union. I and my Father, he says, you and me, and I and you. So in addition to Jesus sending the Spirit to his followers, the entire Trinity, Creator, Redeemer, and Waymaker, comes to dwell within those who seek to love as Jesus loves. And I just need to pause here for a moment and ask if you've ever considered the possibility that the Trinity isn't just external to you, but seeks to make a home within you. The mystery, the awe, the possibility, the system that is the Trinity dwelling within you and me and everyone who seeks to love as Jesus loves. Can we breathe that good news in for a moment? The Trinity, traditionally known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but so much more than that, is not an idea to worship, and it's not a doctrine to explain or defend. John's Gospel claims that God in three persons with three separate but equal functions not only exists, but seeks to take up residence within us. Can we sit this possibility beside the fear and the bad news that seems to come at us from every direction? 
And can we move it closer to our struggle to live lives worthy of our humanity? And can we bring it even closer still to those things that affect us in this world that dim the light of Christ within our hearts and our minds? If we dare to take Jesus at his word, our sense of ourselves, of each other, and of what's possible here and now changes. And like the character of Nicodemus, who shows up earlier in John's gospel, I find myself astounded by this thought. How can these things be? How can mere mortals, so fallible, so challenged, so lost, so often, become the dwelling place of the Trinity? The condition for this divine Trinitarian cohabitation, it's right here in our text. One word, love. Loving the three-in-one's commandment to love others as all three love us. And I want to get to the loving others part, but first, before we can even go there, we need to be clear about how God loves us. And you heard it when we had our time of confession. Jonathan spoke it so beautifully. But God does not ask us to share a love that isn't already ours. And because it's very easy to become confused about how God loves us, even miss the point entirely, let's revisit this. Because the world package, packages and sells all manner of substitutes for love. John's gospel sums it up with one line, really. For God so loved the world, God gave God's only so that all would have abundant life. This is the love that makes life better here and now. It's love that loves first, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done or what we will do or not do. God doesn't wait for you to love God before God loves you wholly and unconditionally. You can never earn this love. It is as free, as essential, and as available as the very air we breathe. You are loved without reason, without limit, without fear. Breathe that love in. And breathe it out. This is how we're called to love others as we walk through this world that God so very loves. By loving others first, even when they haven't asked for it, even when they don't deserve it, even when they're so very difficult, even when they failed to love us as we've needed to be loved. And it's difficult to lean into this love to lean into loving those who don't love us back. It's so challenging to love those who stand in our way of building a better world. We are wounded, scarred, 
and scared humans. It's just a fact. Because the world does change us. But here's a secret. We don't have to feel love towards others to lean into loving them. This kind of love is a choice of the will. It's not a feeling. And if we can remember what Jesus said, not that God loves us if we love others, because we already have God's abundant love, but that the Holy Three seeks to nest within those who desire to embody Jesus' lay down your life for another love, it changes things, doesn't it? I mean, imagine what life can be with this system influencing our behavior, our thoughts, and our priorities. Now, before I go any further, I do need to make a disclaimer. There are real threats, real people, and real situations that need protection. And if someone is causing you or a loved one physical or emotional harm, you do need boundaries to keep everyone safe. Lay down your life for another love doesn't mean becoming a doormat for abuse, and it isn't filling up everyone's bucket while your own becomes depleted. Because remember, Jesus did say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That love yourself, that's an important piece of this whole endeavor. But where abuse is not present, where we aren't in danger, then lay down your life for another love is the practice of giving others what we want to receive. The benefit of the doubt. Patient, empathetic listening, and generous, tangible support. Lay down your life for another love moves us from a posture of protecting our own self-interests to seeking the good of the many, especially those with less power and fewer resources. And on the eve of Juneteenth, as we celebrate the emancipation of enslaved divine image bearers, I am mindful that lay down your life for another love won that day. Even though we still have a long way to go, The faith of our ancestors claims that love will win in the end. Our hope lies in the manifestation of the new heaven and the new earth of John's revelation. That time and that place where mourning and crying and pain will be no more because God's home is fully established on earth as in heaven. We wait for that day. And until that day, with the Holy Three at work in us, we seek to love what God loves and to do what God does. And what does that look like? Well, you've heard it said, and it sounds trite, but it is so powerful. God is love. Whenever we don't want to love, God is love. 
love that orders the cosmos and the chaos, out there and in here, love that creates out of nothing, love that breathes life into all of this creation. And Jesus is love, love with dusty feet and legs that keep moving, love with a gut that feels deep pain and a belly that laughs with joy, love with arms that reach out and fingers that touch to heal, love with eyes that shine bright with the light of hope, the spark of justice and the sting of tears. And the Holy Spirit is love, love that abides, love that stays, love that crosses boundaries and takes risks to grow a world where everyone thrives abundantly, just like the holy three-in-one God, that beloved, co-equal, co-flourishing community. That couples therapist that I mentioned at the beginning, just to bring you back, she said that new words make new thoughts and new feelings possible. And while the Trinity is not a new word to us, and while the concept of one God in three co-equal, co-flourishing roles, that's not new to us either, I do think that the promise that this holy Trinitarian system seeks to dwell within us, that that promise makes all sorts of new things possible if we lean into it, if we dare to trust it. The Holy Trinity will carry us toward the new heaven and the new earth as we learn to welcome this trinity of love into our lives like we welcome our very next breath. And as we learn to breathe this unending, earth-bending love back into the world God so very loves, ah, oh, the boundaries and the borders of God's realm on earth, they grow. So I say, come, Holy Trinity, find your dwelling place within us. Amen.